When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good afternoon, Celtics fans, and welcome to CLNS Radio Celtics Beat. This is our first midweek bonus episode, and we've got a real treat as we welcome Celtics Radio play-by-play announcer Sean Grandy to the show. I want to remind everyone that you can find Celtics Beat on iTunes and Stitcher. Head on over to whichever source you use to get your podcast from and subscribe, rate, and review us. It's a great way to stay on top of the show and what's happening with the Celtics in the NBA. Well, my co-host today is Stats Adam, Adam Lowenstein. Welcome to the show, Adam. It's uh, been a while since we've worked together. Well, absolutely. It, it feels like the season is so far into it since we've last talked, but uh, always glad to speak with you and always glad to talk about the Celtics. Yeah, the Celtics are in the midst of a soft spot in the schedule this week. They did manage to get a win on Monday night in Philadelphia against the lowly Sixers on Monday and welcome the Orlando Magic into the Garden tonight and then Flip Saunders and the Toothless Timberwolves on Friday. Adam, I think folks looked at this week and a couple of the games last week and thought that the Seas might be able to get themselves on track, but so far it hasn't really worked out that way. It feels like one of those deceivingly easy parts of the schedule. It feels like the team was able to steal a couple wins earlier in the year when they got Chicago, and we didn't know what Indiana was going to be like, and then you had Brooklyn, that victory as well. But since then, it's been tough to find the good victories, with the exception of the splitting with Washington, which was kind of a weird two-game set in the back-to-back. But since they finished with that two-game set with Washington, you would think that the winning streak would have began. But if anything, they've struggled with the teams that have really had trouble against other teams. I think just because the stars have come out to play, like Al Jefferson and, and Lance Stevenson came back a little bit, and we saw Mars Dyermeyer at least grab some rebounds while the Knicks were able to put up some points against the Celtics. Yeah, I think your expectations for kind of this five-game stretch ending later on this week were, were pretty high. I don't know if that was very realistic. I think this team has so far this season shown a tendency to kind of play up and down to the level of the competition. And, you know, the reality is that two of the teams, you know, Charlotte and New York, are really underachievers, right? And they, they should be better than they are. And so I think it was maybe a little bit uh, unreasonable to expect you know, those games to be easy games or to kind of slot those in as wins almost re- reflexively, uh, especially considering the Celtics are still at a point in their progression where they can't really take anybody for granted. And I think if nothing else, maybe some good came out of those games this uh, last week in that they you know, maybe have learned their lesson and will kind of buckle down this week. Week and, and squeak out some 
wins against what are eminently uh, beatable teams. Yeah, it's surprising to see the Orlando Magic on top of the Celtics while the Knicks and Charlotte are teams that are bottom feeders in the East. So it is kind of a little topsy-turny as far as the teams that are below the upper echelon in the Eastern Conference. We know that there's so many teams in the West that are going to make it tough in the Celtics, and they still have that crazy losing streak on the road against Western Conference opponents. But for the Eastern Conference, every night is is some weird thing that we don't know what's going to happen, especially when we saw what, what happened with a team like Washington that is one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, especially with the Cavs struggling. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, looking up and down at the Eastern Conference, most of the teams are really still, even the, the better teams are still trying to find an identity. I mean, you look at the Cleveland Cavaliers, obviously they had some struggles early. They seem to be hitting a stride, but they're still figuring out who they are. Washington added Pierce, that veteran presence, and they're still trying to figure out how to integrate him into their identity, particularly after losing Trevor Ariza, who was a big part of that team last year. Chicago reintegrating Derrick Rose, integrating Paul Gasol. So even with the better teams, there's still a lot of question marks in the Eastern Conference and I think that creates a lot of that churn that you're, you're talking about and and thinking of tonight's game this is the first meeting with the Magic this year and in the Big Three era a bit of a rivalry had developed between these two franchises but of course they're both in very different places these days what can fans expect to see from this Magic team? That's really interesting because we saw Aaron Gordon go down earlier in the season and that was unfortunate because he was one of the high picks and really was that upper echelon type of pick in the NBA draft in 2014. So he's going to be reevaluated going down the line, and that Magic team had lost a big player right there because we didn't really know what the Magic team was going to look past the top five or top four on this team. Of course, Nikola Vucevic, in my opinion, is one of the best centers in the league. And I, I love watching him play just because of how well he's able to bring down the boards. It's one of those things that the Celtics haven't had since Kendrick Perkins, and it feels like it's always tough when, when the Celtics play a guy who is that seven-foot monster in the paint because, really, Zeller has been the closest we've had one in a long time in Boston. So it's tough to, to see, on the other end of the court, a guy like Vucevic, who is a pretty young dude who can actually step up in the paint. Yeah, absolutely. He's... Uh... I think a potential candidate, it's still early, but a candidate for most improved player of the year mm. this year. Um, he's, you know, he's put up some decent numbers in the past, but I think he's really putting his game together this season. And, you know, he could have an outside shot at, at the All-Star game this year with the numbers that he's putting up. And granted, it's on, not a great team, but I think, you know, particularly when you look at rebounding numbers, those are kind of hard to accumulate. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to accumulate points on a bad team. It's another thing, you know, rebounding is pretty legit you know you have to be out there and being a physical presence and that's you know really what he is and and that's a good contrast with Zeller who I think Zeller is probably a little bit more skilled on the offensive end than Vucevic is but is nowhere near the rebounder defender and and rim protector uh, that Vucevic is and you know they've got some interesting pieces of course you know the big draft pick last year was Victor Oladipo and folks are still trying to figure out what he is in the NBA I know Magic has have played him him quite a bit at point guard. Uh, the Magic traded away last uh, offseason, one of their, their big mainstays for a long time in Jameer Nelson. So they're still trying to find their identity, but they've got some intriguing pieces. It would have been nice to see Gordon, as, as you mentioned. And Celtics beat executive producer Larry Russell published a very nice piece on CLNSRadio.com today 
taking an in-depth look at the magic and where they are in their rebuilding process and their focus on culture. Adam, how would you compare the relative progress that these two franchises, Orlando and the Celtics, are making as they strive to get back to respectability? Well, it's interesting because it seemed like the Magic were self-destructed piece by piece as opposed to the Celtics who did it all in one trade or or we saw the Ray Allen leave and then, of course, the big trade that was covered widespread by the media. It seems like the Magic have done it where all of a sudden they were this young team that turned from being a conference semifinal, conference final perennial team to a team that looked like a a team that was always uh, looking in the draft. And it, it came as a surprise to me to see Jacques Vaughn leading a team that was a bottom feeder because all of a sudden we had seen these teams where I was expecting the old grizzled veterans where we saw Jameer Nelson and we saw Richard Lewis. And then, of course, we had the fun pieces that actually went through the Celtics and the Magic, like Courtney Lee and Michael Petrus. So we had those fun rivalry times where – even when KG was out, they went to seven that year in 09. And then, of course, the following year, the Celtics were able to go through the Magic. But I feel like it's just it's tough to see both these teams fighting back when all they have are these young pieces where you still feel like the jury's out for a lot of these players. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the Magic kind of started their rebuilding process. Actually, even while Dwight Howard was still there, there was that kind of last uh, tumultuous year there in Orlando. And I think they kind of saw the writing on the wall and started yeah. to make some moves to to position themselves and get a little bit of a head start. So I, I think kind of timetable-wise, they're maybe a little bit ahead of the Celtics in the sense that they started tearing it down and building it back up a little bit sooner. But there's a lot of similarities, I think, as both franchises really try to navigate some of the pitfalls with rebuilding, which really have to do with culture and accountability. And that's a big focus of Larry Russell's uh, piece in CLNSRadio.com. Really encourage folks to go check that out. Uh, has a lot of good uh, quotes and interviews with some folks associated with the magic. And I think it's it's really interesting, too, if you look at some of the rebuilding franchises across the league, I think it's interesting that you know, you've got several direct disciples from the Greg Popovich, San Antonio Spurs coaching tree uh, running some of those franchises. And in the case of the Celtics, uh, a franchise that is really trying to emulate some of what, what San Antonio built. You, know, you look at Philadelphia and Brett Brown uh, as a coach there and their focus on trying to maintain some level of accountability and and avoid some of the negative baggage that gets built up uh, as the losses start to mount when you're rebuilding and uh, Orlando trying to do the same thing with Jock Vaughn who also you know played under under Popovich and I think I believe was an assistant coach for under him as well so I don't think that's an accident I think uh, you know the smart NBA franchises are really looking at that San Antonio organization right as a model for how you build sustainable success. And it's one thing to go out and try to make a big splash in the free agency market or in the trade market. But if you don't really have that that culture and that foundation of accountability and, and a program, uh, it, that can be a dicey pr- proposition, as we've seen in the past. We've seen organizations do that, go out and amass a lot of talent in a hurry and kind of throw the pieces together and, and see how they fit. And it's generally not been successful, or at least not successful immediately. Uh, whereas teams like the Celtics, when they brought 
the big three together back in the, the summer of 2007, they were not only acquiring talent, they really thought about acquiring talent that fit. And they, they, they really started with the foundation of the coach and Doc Rivers and the best player in Paul Pierce being on the same page. And then they added those other two big pieces around that and groomed some of the young pieces. And I think they went through that with, an, with a real eye toward identity. And uh, that's very different than and, you know, some of the, the teams that have been kind of thrown together and maybe struggled despite the level of talent. It's so weird looking at the difference between those teams when they were in their heyday or their recent heyday uh, in the playoffs and everything. And it feels so long ago when Dwight Howard was, was with the Magic. I feel like it was a generation ago, it feels like, just because of how crazy that whole saga was and how he's done it twice now with different teams, the Lakers and the Magic. I honestly completely forgot about his Magic saga because of how crazy he made his time with the Lakers. I think because, and as you mentioned, with throwing together all the pieces, we saw in L.A. when they tried to do that with the Ron Artest or Meta World Peace, whatever his name was at that point, <laughs> and the Steve Nash and Kobe Bryant and Dwight Howard. It was so frustrating to watch, especially when you were Mike Brown and you were fired before you could even coach another game or coach five or six games. It was a horrible experience in L.A. for Dwight Howard, as he's seen. And now with the Rockets, they were upset in the first round of the playoffs last year. And now they're looking to pick up the pieces and are trying to find out how can they make this team better, but they lost Chandler Parsons. We see a lot of these star-led teams really fall flat a lot, very often, well, especially because it's tough to win when you're in the LeBron era. And then you have just a lot of situations where they're trying to put together all these stars and then trying to find a coach who can coach them. Dave Blatt, we, we didn't even know that that was going to happen in Cleveland. Yeah, and that's one of the big question marks with that team. You, How much influence and how much control and authority does he really have with LeBron sitting there on the bench and, and really the open questions about how you integrate these these three talents all into a kind of a unified identity and and the jury's really out on two things with regard to Cleveland as far as I'm concerned, the defense and the and the coaching. And I guess we'll see how that plays out over the rest of the season. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing just really because the West is so up for grabs. And although we seem to have a hold on what's going on in the East, with Washington and Toronto fighting up at the top of the standings, you really feel like it could be up for grabs, especially with when you're talking about the uncertainty in Chicago. And then Atlanta sneaking up there as well, when they already have one of the best win totals and one of the best scoring differentials in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, it's interesting. Andre Snellings and I talked about this in the last episode that the while the the West is clearly much superior to the Eastern Conference, there's enough parity within each conference that a lot of the playoff positioning is still really up for grabs in each conference. And I think that's going to have an effect on the trade market in terms of making it a lot more active in that there's going to be a lot more buyers than there are sellers. And I think that increases the demand and the value to the sellers. And I think it should be a Pretty interesting uh, two months leading up to the February deadline. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like we'll see what the Celtics end up being when we get to February because we really don't know how they're going to be looking as far as playoff position. But really, are they going to try to buy anybody for the short term? You really don't think so when you look at this Celtics team. And the crazy thing is, is do they want players who are going to play at such a high pace because the Celtics are running teams out of the gym, it seems like. We saw that with Philadelphia on Monday. 
Yeah, absolutely. They've been playing their best when they've been able to push the pace this season and that when they're they've got the up-tempo game going they've got the ball movement and the spacing going that seems to be the times when they're playing the best and building those leads and you know we're a quarter of the way into this kind of up and down season so far who for you has been the team's MVP at this point and who do you think has shown the most improvement? It's a great question because we've seen improvement from Kelly Olynyk, I think, the most out of any player. And then you have Tyler Zeller really being the standout as far as the new guy to the team. But I feel like you have to go with Sellinger as the quote-unquote MVP just because of how consistent he can be for this team. Even though he isn't going to be the leading scorer most nights, I feel like he just gives you the most out of any player when it comes to knowing that he's going to be there for you every game. It's kind of like that consistency rating when you think of either fantasy football or or trying to figure out who you want to trust the most. So I feel like when it comes to Selinger, I just like him because of him being able to contribute in so many different facets. And, of course, he had the three-point renaissance after struggling at the beginning of the season. I feel like Olenek is my most improved and Selinger is my MVP. Yeah, I got to agree with you on Olenek as being the most improved. You know, he's had some some challenging games this year, but one of the most encouraging aspects to me is he's had some games where he's really struggled in the first half and then put it together in the second half. And that, I think, speaks to, I think, some of the maturity he had coming in as kind of an older rookie. Uh, I think that certainly helps. But uh, more importantly, I think it kind of shows his basketball IQ and his ability to kind of figure things out uh, as he goes along and not get too discouraged if something is working it's like okay what can I pull out of the toolbox right now and he does have an interesting set of tools so I would agree with him as being the, the most improved the MVP is a tough one because like you've you kind of alluded to there's been so much inconsistency with the team I kind of almost want to give it to, to Jeff Green though um, if for nothing else a reward for how much more assertive he's been particularly over the last 10 games or so I think he's really starting to recognize that he needs to force the action and make things happen and sometimes it's not going to be pretty uh, but there's a value in him being assertive at times when the rest of the team is ready to kind of go back on its heels. I think Sullinger is a good choice and as you said he's probably been uh, the most steady although he's going through a bit of an offensive slump right now. He uh, you know he tends to still kind of bring the effort every night and his effort level doesn't waver but I think in terms of the guy who's really establishing him himself on the court as being a big pre- presence for them. I think it's it's been Jeff Green so far. I think it's really interesting because Jeff Green was one of the lowest scorers as far as the lowest high-scoring players for the Celtics last season in almost any season all time in Celtics history. Mm-hmm. I think he was around like 17 or 18 points per game, and now you're seeing him taking over games more often, I feel like. I understand it was Olenek more on Monday, but when it's a closer game, he seems to at least be the go-to guy that you hope to get it to, even though the Celtics still don't really have the go-to player that we were seeing when Pierce was here. Yeah, I mean, you look at a guy like Olenek, certainly has some skills with the ability to space the floor with his shooting, and he's got phenomenal passing skills, but he's not going to be able to consistently generate his own shot. Uh, neither is Selinger. You know, Zeller's a finisher. He seems to be actually been a pleasant surprise for me on that front, particularly when he's on the court with Rondo. But Green is still that only guy that can really go create his own offense. And again, it is ugly at times, but at least that capacity is there, particularly against 
against weaker defenders. He can either you know overpower them with his his quickness or overpower them with his size, depending on who he's facing. And he seems to be the most reliable off, uh, option for generating offense when sets break down or when they're not able to kind of push the ball up quick and, and catch a defense uh, still scrambling. He seems to be the guy in the half court set that can get a shot when everything else breaks down. And I think that's what's made him, uh, to me, the mo- most valuable at this point. Isn't it crazy that I think you mentioned Rondo a tiny bit there, but that was the first time we talked about him this entire podcast. So I feel like we should at least give him his due and say he's been one of the only players to actually get a triple-double this season. Pretty sure he's the only guy to get it three times this season. So that's just something that is pretty amazing about Rondo where I understand triple-doubles are not the end-all, be-all, but just being able to put together some impressive games like that and still being one of the best passers in the NBA and doing it on the stat sheet as well in addition to having the pedigree, I'm just impressed with Rondo being all that he is without any fanfare, it seems like. It's great that he's doing so well just with his assist percentage continuing to be one of the best in the NBA. And I just feel like he's really not getting talked about at all this season. Well, I think he is. I think he's getting talked about. Where he is getting talked about, it's in a negative light because I think yeah. folks have, to some degree, unfairly attached his name to some of the consistency issues and some of the struggles they've had in closing out games. And certainly, he's a factor in that, but he's not the sole factor. And I think that's a nice teaser because I do want to touch on that subject a little bit with Sean uh, when we bring him on in a minute. And also, I think you know, you and I can explore that a little bit more later in the show. All right, let's bring in our guest, Celtics Radio play-by-play announcer Sean Grandy of 98.5 The Sports Hub. Our interview with Sean is brought to you by the world-famous Beats and Eats podcast with Nick Gelso and Ty Ray. Food, comedy, pop culture, and more. That's beatsandeats.net. Thanks for joining us today, Sean. Anytime, guys. I mean, you know, this is rocking and rolling. We're almost, uh, what are we, almost a third of the way into the season. I mean, can't beat it. That's right. Yeah, nothing better than talking about the Celtics, and we are about a third of the way through. What's been the biggest surprise for you, positive or negative, about this team so far? I, I think they're pretty much where I thought they would be. I think there was a natural feeling going in. I always have trepidation about seasons that I think begin with expectations that are unrealistic, and I started the year trying to quell those by pointing out that the Celtics last year won 25 games with veteran players helping them win games. Chris Humphreys, Jordan Crawford, Courtney Lee, these guys helped you win games. So the Celtics were younger in the players they were relying on this year. So, uh, And the schedule was very busy last year. It's funny, Orlando's played the same. We're going to play them Wednesday night. Orlando's played a very similar schedule to the Celtics from last year where they just played a ton of games early. But the teams they played, the Celtics last year, weren't. the schedule wasn't as difficult as far as the content of the games than it has been this year. So I think they're pretty much where they, uh, you know, where I thought they would be. I think the biggest surprise for all of us has been Tyler Zeller and what he has been able to do and how skilled he is near the rim, how well he fits with Rondo. Um, I think from a, you know, we're, we're sort of in the middle right now as we're talking, we're smack dab in the middle of the Jared Sollinger slump. So mm-hmm. I think that's something that in February it will be, Hey, remember in December when there was that week or two when Jared Sollinger was in the run. So I don't think it's a big deal, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, but 
I think that you're coming off a night where if you overall said, you know, Jared Sollinger has been about what you thought he'd be and Kelly Olenek, maybe it's been a little bit of a disappointment. But right now, as we're speaking at this exact snapshot in time, Jared's the one in the slump and Kelly, you know, looked like Larry Bird in Philadelphia. So with a young team, this is what you get. It's the, the EKG of a young team bounces up and down and up and down. And that's what is both frustrating and, you know, sort of fun to watch the development. Yeah, you talk about the expectations and coming into the season, they did seem like they were relatively low folks. I think recognized it was a young team, particularly after they were unable to make a big splash in the offseason. Yet it kind of seemed like when the team was able to compete against some good competition, only kind of to fall short repeatedly, fans in the media got down on them pretty quickly. What's your take? Are we focusing too much on wins and losses right now and not appreciating the process that the team needs to go through? I, I think there was a, a point a couple of weeks ago where fans were, I don't want to say starting to turn, but I, I think that I would give overall, you know, the hardcore fans are the hardcore fans and the people that are listening to us now and that are really understand what's going on. Every, you know, you sort of get a pass because everyone's really on the same page. But I thought last year was a difficult year from a minority, a very vocal minority of the fans as far as the whole tanking thing was concerned. And it was becoming difficult to do our job when you'd have Jeff Green in a buzzer beater in Miami or you'd have this brilliant game in Washington where Phil Pressey hits all these threes and Celtics win in overtime, only to have a good-sized portion of the audience. And by that, you know, I base the, you know, the Twitter reaction I get, whatever, mm-hmm. talk shows, being negative about them winning games. And it just became this huge gap between the, the realistic, what really goes on in sports and trying to win games and the sort of talk show perception of losing games and, you know, getting a better draft pick. This year, I think that went away, which has been great, but I think it led to some disappointment that there weren't, you know, there were games that, you know, I think the Celtics, as as we're talking, 8-14, and 14, I think they played more like a 10-12 and 12 team. To have the same script go over and over again and happen in the fourth quarter, where you have the Celtics basically have been the worst fourth quarter team in the league, and the fans have seen that show. I think there was frustration towards the team, and I don't think it's a bad thing because I think it had to do with sort of wanting to see the development. And this, to tell you the truth, I was just so encouraged to see fans disappointed at losing and not excited by it that I actually took that to be a, you know, a positive thing. Hey, Sean, it's Adam here, and you're absolutely right. I feel like just about that fourth quarter margin, which is by far the worst in the league, it just makes you feel like the bottom's going to fall out of them anytime they have those big leads. And you've talked about it several times where, and just on the air, where we'll hear about them having a big lead in the Stevens era, and they're just going to throw it right down the toilet when you get to the second half. What do you think the biggest factors are in these inconsistencies that we've seen with this young team? Uh, learning how to close games, uh, all of a sudden playing the situation and not doing the things that you did to get you there. I think the thing nobody really says out loud that nobody talks about is the fact that in the final five minutes of games, the other team has their best lineup on the floor. And the Celtics' best lineup right now, it, where the Celtics are being competitive and are, are dominating games against like teams like Philadelphia and are competitive game, in games against the elite teams, and this goes back to the last year too, is second unit against second unit. Because when you've got Evan Turner and Brandon Bass and now Kelly Olynyk, that's a second unit that matches up pretty well with a lot of teams in the league. But when your first unit is on the floor in the final five minutes and you need a basket and the other side is Damian Lillard and LaMarcus Aldridge and, you know, Batum or it's LeBron and Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving, 
this is where the difference is. And I think the third part, which maybe is a trigger to what everyone seems to really want to talk about, is the fact that I think there is something interesting happening when it comes to what is a natural deference to your captain and your leader and your best player. But from a basketball standpoint, Rondo is not the guy you should be deferring to in the fourth quarter when you need to score. You know what I'm saying? I think there's a, a young team. They've A lot of these guys watched, they were in college or high school watching Rondo play in the conference finals and the finals, you know, having those legendary games. And now they're on the floor with him in the fourth quarter. You naturally defer to him. But from a skill standpoint, Rondo is not that guy. In the fourth quarter, it's going to be an offensive, you know, score. When you need a score, takeover guy. So I think there's sort of an unnatural thing happening with that too. Yeah, I think there's a lot of negativity associated with that when there doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, you know, that's not his skill set, right? And, you know, the fact that, yeah, the, the fact that it's not his skill set is tied to some deficiencies he seems to have, but it's also a result of the fact of, you know, it's opposed to what his strengths are, which are facilitating for, for other folks. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that you talk about that deference, and I wonder, you know, how much of Rondo's lack of aggressiveness in finding his own shot is really him trying to respect the process and respect kind of the intent of what uh, Coach Brad Stevens is trying to do in developing some of these young players and not saying, hey, okay, you're looking to me. I guess I better do this. Let me go be your crutch and, and do that. And, and you're right. The times where they have played well is when they're out there being free-flowing and aggressive and a guy like Olenek isn't afraid to look for his shot on kind of the semi-break and, and, and take an open three when he, when he has it instead of just kind of backing it out and giving it to Rondo to set up the offense. You know, what's your take on Rondo uh, kind of up and down aggressiveness with regard to finding his own shot. Is it by design? Is it somehow tied to maybe some lingering effects from the, the hand injury or the wrist injury? Uh, what's what's going on there to, to your mind? I think it depends on who you ask. The hand injury, it's funny because I did the game with uh, Keon Dooling had his first game last night and did a tremendous job. We're really excited to have him. He's going to fill in with Max slides over to TV this year, and he talked a lot about the hand uh, in terms of the free throw shooting, in terms of just, you know, shooting in general. It's never been a, you know, uh, a great part of his game. But I think, isn't it, I think the irony is that the concern when Brad Stevens came here was, well, boy, Brad, you know, Rondo really clashed with Doc Rivers, and boy, Brad Stevens is an inexperienced guy. Is Rondo going to be a good citizen? And here we are a year and a half later. I remember saying to everybody, you know, being my natural contrarian minority opinion self, that everyone I thought was missing the point, that this was a relief for Rondo. Mm-hmm. This, you know, Rondo and Doc Rivers, that was a, you know, a bad situation in a lot of ways from the start. They had their great moments, but it was a contentious relationship. And now that the burden of that was removed and you have just two basketball nerds like Rondo and Brad Stevens talking basketball, I think it's been a great relationship. I think Rondo's been a great citizen. I just don't think he is... He has the players around him that make him the player that he was. And because of the injury, we don't know how much of it is the situation he's in versus just you know coming back from the major injury and missing all that time. For whatever reason, right now, he is not the player he was, obviously, two or three years ago. I don't know if that's physical 
mental or the fact that, as we all know, as we've well documented, Adam and I have had this, you know, email conversation a million times. I st- I'm the one who, uh, this is this is my fault, so blame me. I stumbled on this national TV thing, <laughs> the triple-double thing. I, I did, and that comes from institutional memory, where all of a sudden you're sitting on a plane one night, and you're like, you know what, there's something weird about this. It just seems, when I cataloged them in my head, and he was probably 10 or 11 in at that time, it seems like they were all big games. They were all like Sunday afternoon games, so then... We all started doing our research, and obviously, lo and behold, we came up with these crazy numbers in which, at the time, obviously, there aren't any more national TV games, which we'll get to in a second, that, you know, Rondo was, you know, 70% of his triple-doubles have come in the big national TV games when about 30, 25 or 30% of the schedule represented those games. So clearly, there's little insight into Rondo, and he is the rare breed that when the games get harder and you're playing Game 7 on the road in the playoffs – Rondo gets better when yeah. other guys get worse. And that makes him an extraordinarily valuable commodity for a team that is competing for a championship. The Celtics in 2015 are not competing for a championship yet. And if you have a guy who is brilliant on Sunday afternoon ABC games and Thursday night TNT games, and you put him with the team that's going to be playing a lot of Tuesday night games against Charlotte, if you know what I'm saying. Yep. And is in the other end. There are two NBAs. There's, you know, I, I have always compared it to uh, Premier League soccer yep. and the relegation pool. You know that there's two. There's two NBAs. There's the Kenny and you know Charles and Ernie TNT NBA, and there's the rest of the NBA. I believe I know this for a fact, and this is one of my good friends in the world. I don't think Doc Rivers could have existed. You know, he's like a fish that needed that water of the other NBA. He, he's not going to. He can't exist in this. You know, it's hard enough for someone with my ego to exist in this NBA. You miss, you know, going back last year, I remember it felt like the first day of school, going back last October, when all the chairs are small again, and you just feel like, you know, you're like going back to your old kindergarten, and you don't, you know, fit there anymore after spending six years at the center of the NBA. I don't think that could exist, and I think that if it's harder for, you know, it's harder for Rondo. He gets bored. Some things come so easy to him that he needs to be pushed. And, you know, even now we see him against the best, the best game he's had since the injury. And we're talking, what, 50, 60 games he's played now? The best game he's played since the injury was the Laker game after his, you know, breakfast with Kobe. Uh, and then the game after that against John Wall, the, the home game, the afternoon game. And he plays better against the better players. It's always been that way. It's really interesting just looking at, Rondo playing all the games under Stevens this year. It's nice to have him playing every game because then you can get a better sample size with just how they work together on the court. What we've seen this year is a high-paced team, the highest-paced team in the NBA after they were a middle-of-the-pack-paced team last year. Is this how Stevens wants to play the team, and are they the most effective at this level? Actually, I think Rondo can be. Uh, they are because you know, you're going to have a lot of teams unless you, have, unless you have LeBron, unless you have guys that get to the free-throw line with extraordinary regularity and efficiency or you have that dominant low post score and how many of those are there now in in the modern nba i'm watching the that nba 90 show was on nba tv today and you realize how just what a different era it's not better or worse as i used to tell my ex-wife when i would look at the dance team <laughs> not better or worse honey it's just different uh it's not that you know it's it, the nba was different back then and obviously you have an outside game you have seven footers all stepping out and shooting threes now except in philadelphia they don't make any of them but you you, you it's a completely different game now. And so if most of these teams, 
need to get the ball off the floor quickly and set up their offense. I, I don't think I have to explain to anyone who happens to be a numbers person about the NBA that your field goal percentage in the shot clock is a direct correlation between when your shot comes and the shot clock and the efficiency of it. So everybody wants to get the ball, for the most part, up the floor quickly, and some guys are better in that system and some guys aren't. What changes have you seen in Coach Brad Stevens' approach this season compared to last? I think he hit the ground running more. Uh, as much as you can. Uh, it's really, I'm only fresh off this perspective because I did the game with Keon last night, who I think is a real, he's a natural at this, but it was the first time he had ever done it. And the first time any of us do anything, and I mean anything, you know, flashback to high school or whatever it was that you're thinking of when I say that, you were, uh, you were 10, you know, the first time was like, oh my gosh, okay, what do I do here? You know, this is all new. I remember the very first night, the same night I'm talking about with everything, the chairs look small, was Brad's first game, and he wasn't even sure how many timeouts he had in each half. So think about how hard it is to do all the things you have to do when you're still trying to get your footing, you know, doing all that. The analogy I made last year, I did a, a Rutgers game for CBS. Eddie Jordan had been in the NBA for, you know, all these years, playing, coaching, had a great run with the Wizards, and now he'd gone back to college. And talking to him, he was like, well, you know, it's been, it's been great, but boy, it's, this is real work. You know, in NBA, when practice is over, work's over. But in college, you've got to go on the phone. You've got to be on the phone with, the, with your players' professors. There are fundraisers. There are boosters. There are events. There's recruiting. There's all this other stuff you have to do. So think about if you're Rutgers, as Eddie Jordan is getting his feet under him, doing all these things, everybody else is gaining an advantage. So that's what it wasn't like with Brad last year, that there were so many things he was learning that I don't think he could do with natural, you know. I think he just knew the routine. I actually talked to, to John Farrell about this when I was doing the Red Sox last year. I forget the pitcher, Mevin Alex Cobb. I was talking about pitchers in their second and third year in the major leagues and what changes. Like they can't, it's not that their stuff is getting any better. And we talked about just the comfort with the routine of, of Major League Baseball, of when your start is, of where's the clubhouse, where are the hotels, where's, what do I do at this time and this time and this time, just that general comfort level that comes with everybody. And whatever it was that flashed into your mind when I said the first time you do something, I'll bet you feel like you do it better now than you did then. Absolutely. I feel like we, we look at, first of all, I want to say Kelly Olynyk. I feel like is one of those guys who you can talk about who's come already a long way and just – fewer than 100 games already in his NBA career. It's impressive that he's stepped up, and we saw on Monday against, of course, the hapless Philadelphia 76ers. He is the team best in plus-minus, and he's really just shown up, of course, just in various lineups, but just in various areas, he's been able to put up so much for the Celtics team. When Jared Felger was coming off the bench last year, he started putting up those good numbers, too. And again, this is what we're talking about. The Celtics is the second unit, generally, are competitive with almost anybody. So now you're putting Kelly, you gain confidence when you're playing against players that aren't as good. Number one, that, you know, that certainly helps. It's a good way to get your groove back. And young players are so, just like Game was talking about with Kelly last night, as soon as he made his first shot, it was like the weight of the world was lifted and he was just playing free and easy and from confidence is just, it's like the stock market the last couple of weeks. It's just very volatile and you just don't know one step in one direction could really just, you know, could really just set it off. 
And Monday was a big day in the NBA calendar. Players signed in the offseason can now be traded. The date access is kind of the unofficial kickoff to the trading season. There's some level of expectation that the team will be active. I think I saw one of those wonderful little um, Bleacher Report uh, posts on Facebook saying that the Celtics were one of the more active teams on the phones uh, the last couple of days. How do you see it playing out? Do you think the team will be out there making moves? I am. I will officially, at this moment... At this time, I'll say something. I'll, I'm changing my opinion <laughs> from early in the year. I'll do it with you guys since you asked me first. I do think a deal is coming. You know, these first of all, these deals are very complicated and they're very hard to make. But if you're asking me my honest opinion, at the beginning of the year, it was my feeling was that probably not. You know, and obviously when you say major deal, I think we know what we're talking about. That I really didn't think it was going to happen. I didn't think it was the first choice. And I still think it's not necessarily the first choice. But I think circumstances, you know, being what they are, the way the tea leaves are reading, for the first time, I'd probably believe it is more likely than not that the big deal everyone's talking about is probably going to happen. And some of the names you see out there, Lance Stevenson, Greg Monroe, take your pick from the disappointing Nets. Are the Celtics likely to have any interest in any of those guys that you're hearing about? Uh, I think there would probably be interest in Greg Monroe. I, I don't know how much, you know. I think that, uh, I'll put it this way, if you're the Celtics and you're going to make the big move, you want at least one young, you know, building block player. I, I think my, my concern would be, from a, from a franchise standpoint, I believe that if there is a Rondo trade, I believe what comes back, I see almost no circumstance by which fans don't perceive it as a disappointment. And I, the word I am leaning very heavily on in that sentence was perceive, mm-hmm. because I just think that fans' view of Rondo's value, and put aside the fact that he's going into free agency at the end of the year, I think that fans' view of what he is right now is, A, the sort of Tommy Heinsohn green-colored glasses combined with the romanticism of the moments and the games that when you close your eyes, you think of when you think of Rondo. Because again, when you close your eyes and think of Rondo, you're not thinking about the seven turnovers on Tuesday night in Charlotte. You're thinking about one of the greatest games I've ever seen anybody play that I've called was his game five of the conference finals in Miami in 2002. He was probably the best. It was a blowout game, but he was probably the best player on the floor in the, the night that the Celtics won the championship mm-hmm. in game six. So those are the things you think of. And the fact that he's just a very unique skill set and is a unique offensive player and special to watch and has star quality. Uh, I don't think the, the players that would come back and the, whatever the primary player would be in any such deal, I don't think that person is going to be perceived as a star the same way Celtic fans perceive a Rondo as a star. But my last sentence would be that doesn't mean it's not the right deal. We have so many random things that could shake out this season, but just looking at the the season as a whole, is it possible the playoffs are in you know in the future, or are we going to see possibly a another fifty loss season going back to back for the first time since like the late seventies here? Well, I'm not sure those. If you've watched our beloved Eastern Conference, I'm not sure those two things are mutually exclusive. In <laughs> um, the fact that I don't think, I mean, again, let's just do the math. Let's say you end up thirty-two and fifty. If you're 32 and 50, you're not going to make the playoffs, but when are you out of it? You know what I mean? If you're 32 and 50, you're probably within two or three games of the last spot 
with a few weeks left in the season. So I just don't think the Celtics are going to be bad enough. Uh, it's hard for me to envision a scenario by which the Celtics are not, you know, playing an Eastern Conference schedule, are not into at least the low 30s, which would keep them in the playoff race. And a tweak here and a tweak there, and you know, who knows how a major change would resonate in this season. And the fact that eighth spot, and by the way, I'm mistaken, the eighth spot in the West right now is this game or two under 500, but let's not, you know, go crazy. Uh, I don't know what that eighth spot in the East is. Is that going to be what, 34, 35 wins? So I think a lot of teams are going to be in it until the end. Sean Grandy, voice of the Boston Celtics. You can follow Sean on Twitter at SeanGrandyPBP. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Sean. Anytime, guys. Well, Adam, always as always, interesting perspective from Sean. What stood out to you the most? Well, he always brings a, a unique perspective, I feel like, because even though he sees the Celtics team every day, he's able to bring a fresh look at how the team's going to look going forward. And I feel like that's one thing he definitely noted with regard to the trade. It's really interesting to hear that his mindset has changed because if it's looked like the, the Celtics might be, be making a big trade, it's something that I'm surprised that it'll happen at this part of the year. But if it is, then I'm all for it because you want to get to that next step just because of how the team still still feels like in limbo. And we've talked about how the Magic seem to be a step ahead and we have the 76ers who are piling up all the picks and the players and just how they're able to do that. We just seem like the Celtics are, are in that little you know neutral position. Yeah, it's interesting. I think some of the timing will have to do with the fact that if, you know, for example, it's Rondo involved in a deal, the earlier you trade him, the more value he has to the other team, given that he's a free agent at the end of the year and, and can sign elsewhere, and you, you don't really have any guarantees. So I think in that case, it would behoove them to kind of move a little bit earlier. Um, also, you have to think of you know, the trade market for Rondo is somewhat limited in that a lot of the type of contending teams that would want to acquire a player like him already have established point guards, right? So that kind of shrinks your market and, you know, the idea of kind of creating a little bit of competition between bidders really isn't as significant as it might be in other situations. So I think, you know, if they have decided to make that type of move, I think seeing it earlier rather than later uh, would be something that's, that's pretty likely. Uh, the thing that stood out to me in talking to Sean was the discussion about the close losses and some of the negative reaction to that. And I thought he had a really interesting spin on that in contrasting it to last year where you had a segment of folks who were negative about any time the team would lose. And I had almost forgotten about how miserable that was. Uh, you know, obviously much more for Sean than, than for us, but uh, still having to kind of deal with those tanking questions and that reaction of, oh, great, we screwed ourselves by losing a game here or by winning a game here. And so it is, it is kind of refreshing that we don't have to deal with that. On the flip side, you know, I, I almost wonder that some positive situations about the team's development has gotten somewhat underplayed because of the attention focused on the inability to close some of these games and honestly Sean touched on this a little bit that's one of the harder things to to learn as a rebuilding team is what you need to do to make the right types of plays to win close games against competitive NBA teams. And, you know, I think Andre Sellings and I talked a little bit about this on, on the last show, is that it looks to me like they're building these leads primarily on offense, right? You're playing against opponents who may be taking them a little bit lightly, 
and you're, you're they're settling for jump shots. You're able to get out and run. You've got good ball movement and, and spacing, particularly with Olenek on the floor. And you're getting good looks at the basket, converting them, and building these big leads. Uh, but the challenge is that hasn't been sustainable when the other team makes a focused, concerted effort to attack them on the interior where they're weak defensively. Then all of a sudden the stops go away. The up-tempo pace starts to slow down. And when Stevens does go to a more defensive lineup and moves Olenek out of there and moves Bass in, well, the offense tends to crater. Then the ball movement stops because you don't have that extra passer along the front line. And so in the, the spacing effect that you get with Olenek shooting. So, you know, I, I think there's clearly explainable reasons that, yeah, in terms of the long-term development of the team, those things need to be resolved. But I think it's it's having the effect of obscuring some otherwise positive aspects to the team's development and that's been kind of disappointing for me it's really interesting to see teams rebuilding like the celtics and like the magic and like the 76ers teams that are not going to be able to power themselves to victory because their front lines are not as powerful as the juggernauts of the western conference and some of the east so when we look at a team like the Celtics, who is the worst fourth quarter average margin in the NBA, I thought Orlando was going to be closer to the bottom than the Celtics were because of how many times they've had trouble closing out games recently. And I feel like it seems that when you don't have the experience, you don't know how to win. And I feel like that is part of the reason why I've never been a fan of tanking because when you get 15 new guys on a team where you have so much turnover and then you have so many draft picks and then you completely strip your team of all contracts whatsoever, like the 76ers basically did, they have no idea how to win a basketball game. At least the Magic and Celtics have put together rosters that have a few guys who I feel like I want to see at the end of games. We know Jeff Green's been on some successful teams, and of course he hasn't been the go-to guy yet, but he can find out how to do it. And I feel like Sellinger's hit some key shots as well, and we know Olenek can can do it from time to time. And of course Rondo's been out there for, for many games where they are in a huge atmosphere and a big important game on national television as we've discussed several times with with Sean Grady before I feel like you want to be able to look at how to win and you can still get the first pick because of how the lottery system is created we don't know what the rest of the season is going to behold for this team but I just don't like when it feels like that the team is out of it in the fourth quarter because their roster is not ready to contend until a following season past another draft. You need to learn as a cohesive unit, at least hopefully most of this team is going to be part of a cohesive unit going forward, learn how to win in the important time. We remember seeing Winning Time, the documentary about Reggie Miller. That's when you want to learn how to win near the end of the game. Yeah, it's interesting going back to the Larry Russell piece about the magic on clnsradio.com. He referenced a quote from somebody who was an unnamed source, but saying, hey, there's really four phases to developing an NBA team into a contender. And phase one is being able to beat bad teams at home. Phase two is to be able to beat bad teams on the road. Phase three is to be able to beat good teams at home. And phase four is obviously beating good teams on the road. And and you know, that's one way of looking at it. If you look at it kind of through that lens, the Celtics are kind of in that 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 phase two right now, right? They're, you know, they, they can beat bad teams at home. Um, they're still figuring out what it takes to beat good teams at home. And and another way of looking at it, though, I think, and it's interesting when you contrast, say, the Sixers and the Celtics, is that 
Philadelphia is really looking at a couple of young guys that they think might be centerpieces and really just trying to help those guys figure out what it is that they are individually in the NBA, right? Uh, the Celtics are in a little bit different place. Even with some of their young guys, while they, they still have some fine-tuning to do in that area, they have, they have several players that know who they are in the NBA, right? Uh, even, you know, some that might be part of this, this future core. Uh, and what they're trying to do is actually figure out how they play together, what they are together collectively, right? And that's a hard thing when you're still changing pieces. And I think that's somewhat of the process that the team is going right now. It's, okay, how does a Kelly Olynyk who, you know, we, we think we know what he's going to be in the NBA, but he needs to figure out what it means to be that in the context of a team and in those close games, as, as you put out. So, you know, if I were to contrast what the Sixers are doing, what the Celtics are doing, I would say that, you know, the Sixers are at, because of what they did with their roster, they're at a more basic level, which is, hey, we've got these young, raw, talented guys. Let's give them, let's try to put them into a good environment to just at least figure out what it is they're going to be in the NBA. And then once we get to that point, we can start trying to you know, apply that and, and integrate that into, a, into more of a team context. And that's still a ways off for them, where I think the Celtics are in that process of really trying to figure out how they integrate all of the various pieces, even as some of those pieces are moving into that team context. And it's really interesting seeing how the Celtics are, are doing this, and it feels like it's a nice progression. Well, I'm not sure the team on the other coast with the Lakers has been able to even hit step one yet because we're still watching the Kobe Bryant experience at Staples Center more often than not. Yeah, that team is a mess, and you, we touched on it a little bit in the last episode, I think. There were some people, fans, and obviously people inside that organization that maybe had unrealistic expectations about what they were uh, going to be, and, and the reality is is sinking in, and it uh, you know is is not going to be pretty the rest of the year. Thing is, you know, they'll, it's the Lakers. They'll always draw some measure of attention, but I think as the year progresses, folks are just going to kind of realize, well, you know, this is what this team is, so you know, maybe despite the, the allure of Los Angeles, we really shouldn't be paying too much attention to them. They get kind of rele- relegated to that second NBA, as, as Sean put it. Well, it's time to go around the NBA in five. Adam, are you ready? Absolutely. All right. Steve Kerr recently came out and adamantly said that the Warriors with the NBA best record right now will not challenge the bowl record of 72 wins in a season. And the main reason he gave was that there's only one Michael Jordan. Uh, what do you think? Do they Can they win 72 games? All right, there's always a chance. But it's so tough when you have a Western Conference that's full of juggernauts that can knock them down any night. And then it's the NBA. There isn't even any cup in the middle of the season like we have in soccer or that Adam Silver is going to try to institute soon. So I just feel like it's so tough. And for a Golden State team that's very injury-ridden over the last few years, we've seen quite a few of those guys go down. I obviously would lean towards now. Yeah, I mean, can they do it? Sure. Will they do it? No. It's it's within the realm of possibility, but I think to break a record like that, you need two things. One, you need the talent, obviously, and Golden State has quite a bit of talent. Whether they're 72-win talent, I think that remains to be seen. But the other thing you need is the incentive, the motivation to do it. And, and the Bulls had that. And, and, and Jordan was really kind of 
the, the caretaker of that motivation and saying, you know, he put that out there as a challenge and was not only challenging himself, by challenging himself, it had the effect of challenging the, the, the rest of the team. And so I don't see Golden State really having any motivation. Any of these teams that, you know, the super teams that have been built where folks have said, oh, well, they might challenge the, the Bulls record. I've always kind of dismissed that because really the incentive and the, and the motivation really isn't there. And until we find a team that's on the verge of winning six straight championships and looking for those challenges, or sorry, six and eight years as the Bulls did, uh, and looking for those types of external challenges, I don't think we're going to see anybody threaten that record. Yeah, it was amazing that they won it that year. One team that hasn't won much in a very long time is the Sacramento Kings. Sunday night, they fired coach Mike Malone and would replace him. They ended up replacing him with Tyrone Corbin on an interim basis. Do you see Corbin coaching the rest of the season? And what chances are you giving Sacramento making the, this year's playoffs? Well, I mean, the West tough. Um, obviously, if Boogie Cousins continues to miss time with the viral meningitis, they don't have the shot. If he comes back, uh, you know, they've got probably not a great chance, but they've got a, a decent puncher's chance along with, with a team like the Pelicans. As for Corbin, I think he does see the end of the season. I think ultimately the plan um, in their own Vivek Ranadive's mind is to get Chris Mullen into that role. I'm not sure that's something Mullen is going to want to take on mid-season without the opportunity to kind of get that support system in terms of a coaching staff around him like Steve Kerr has. But I I think that alone is why Corbin keeps the job through the rest of the year, unless he's a spectacular failure. Very interesting. I knew that it looked like they were just trying to get rid of Mike Mullen. They were trying to find a reason. And when DeMarcus went down, I guess they were like, all right, well, we have the opportunity to fire him from a bad case of a few weeks. I I don't know. It was just a weird situation. I do like the George Carl sighting as well. So we'll see if he's in the mix. I like that Mullen idea. On Sunday, Kobe Bryant passed Michael Jordan for third on the all-time scoring list. Magic Johnson tweeted that Kobe is a top five or six player in NBA history. Where do you have him? Oh, it's tough. Obviously, as a Celtics fan, you have a little tough time trying to put Kobe in the top five. Definitely top ten because of where he ranks with regard to this generation because he kind of separates from the Jordan phase. He is the guy. It's the Kobe era from when Jordan ended to, I think, when LeBron began or when LeBron got into the upper echelon near the middle of his career. So I feel like Kobe definitely deserves the top ten Five or six is tough because I feel like he's closer to seven or eight, but it's he, it's definitely arguable, especially if he stays in the league for a few more years and passes Mitch Kupchak's projection for just only a year and a half. Yeah, I tend to, yeah, I think those statistics that he's accumulating, those counting stats, uh, for me, have less value as time goes on uh, in each year that he plays because they're counting stats. I would probably have him a little bit lower. Um, I think Magic Johnson probably at various times has named uh, 10 or 12 guys as top five or six players. So I take that kind of with a grain of salt. I think he's somewhere right around that, that eight to 12 area. And that's not a knock. You know, we're talking of all the NBA players and the 70-odd year history of the NBA, being a, a top eight player is phenomenal. I can't put him in that pantheon with Russell and Bird and Magic and Michael 
and you know maybe a, a fifth guy like Kareem obviously you know would be up there and that that even has Will Chamberlain outside of the top five right and so you, you look at those names I have a hard time putting him in there I think if you look at kind of that next year and you start talking about guys like Oscar Robertson Jerry West Tim Duncan uh, Shaquille O'Neal I think he starts to kind of fall is somewhere into that play so I would probably say you know without listing out every guy I would probably have him somewhere around you know 9 10 11 right now Going back to the other coast, we have the Hornets. They've been a surprise team in the wrong direction this year after being a surprise playoff team last year. Would you say that Lance Stevenson is going to get traded soon? Because they've been talking about trading everybody except for Big Al and Kemba Walker recently. Yeah, we know Michael's a competitive guy, right? And uh, he probably looks at the Eastern Conference landscape right now and sees an opportunity to get up into that top four um, with, with some big moves and you look at you know they have that that Al Jefferson Kemba Walker to some that I don't know that that's a core that takes you to a championship but I think if you put the right veterans around that uh, they could get up into that 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 home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs you know top four slot and and I think he he's going to have an opportunity to make that move I mean you look at that team and and what would that look like if you added a Brandon Bass to that and you know maybe subtracted a um, you know a guy like um, uh, Lance Stevenson and moved uh, Deron Williams into that spot and and what they would be then they're not going to win a championship but that's probably a second round Eastern Conference team and I think you know he's in, just impatient enough to maybe pull pull the trigger on those types of deals. That's where the impatience comes in. You're absolutely right because we saw Lance Stevenson really only have one of his good games against the Celtics really this season. It's been ugly pretty much other every other night. Uh, I just want the craziness of Lance Stevenson going to L.A. So it would be hilarious seeing him and Kobe trying to fight after, fight after the basketball and then having Swaggy P playing alongside them. Oh, I would just really enjoy seeing those three guys on the court together. Well, another great show, Adam, and that's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtic Speed. As always, great to work with you. Always great to work with you as well. Always, always fun, and I hope to do it again soon. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Chuck Dietz, Astrovex, and Steph Legrateau. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat, and you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. I'd like to thank our guest, Sean Grandy, radio voice of the Boston Celtics, for our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, executive producer, Larry H. Russell, my co-host, Adam Lowenstein. I'm Rich Conti. See you this Sunday with special guest Kelly Dwyer for another edition of Celtics Beat, exclusively on CLNS Radio.